Welcome to Girls on Film. This week we're celebrating women in horror films, from the spooky to the disturbing to the darkly comic. I'm joined by director Vina Sood, actor Marae Enos, and critic Kaylee Donaldson, who shares some of her Halloween favourites. I think it's one of the great movies about the poison that is toxic masculinity that's also one of the great dark comedies of the past 30 years. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Happy Halloween. I'm your host, Anna Smith. We'll hear from critic Kaylee Donaldson shortly. But to kick off the show, I'd like to welcome two guests to talk about a film called The Lie, which is showing on Amazon Prime Video now as part of their Welcome to the Blumhouse collection. I run my mind. It doesn't run me. Feeling positive? I run my mind. Nervous. It doesn't run me. Everyone thinks you're crazy. Help me. I run my mind. Positive? It doesn't run me. The Lie is a chilling, character-driven thriller starring Marae Enos and Peter Sarsgaard as an estranged couple whose teenage daughter, played by Joey King, confesses to pushing her best friend off a bridge. The two desperate parents attempt to cover up the crime and the plot thickens. The film is based on the German film We Monsters. Hey, what happened to your face? Looks like you got hit. Is there a bathroom nearby? Can we pull over now? I'm scared. She can't be trusted to talk to Brittany's dad. Daddy! Kayla! Get down! <gasps> Where's your friend? Oh. Whatever this game is that you're playing, it's over. Where's Brittany? Get off me! Dad! Get out of here! I'm going to the police. The Lie is directed by Vina Sood, a Canadian-born American television writer, director and producer who's known for TV's The Killing, which also stars Marae Enos. I spoke to them both separately about The Lie and their work. Let's hear from Vina first. Hi, Vina. How are you? I love your fuchsia. Thank you very much. I'm glad the fuchsia's there. It's waking me up. It's beautiful. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, because it's morning for you, isn't it? Good morning. Here's some bright colours for you. <laughs> well, welcome to Girls on Film. We're thrilled to have you on the show and congratulations on the lie. It says unsettling. My goodness, that's an understatement. <laughs> I have not had much sleep. There's a lot to chew on, but congratulations. <laughs> um, what drew you to this story and what were you keen to bring to it with your screenplay? I was fascinated by the idea of parents who grapple with the worst thing that could possibly happen <laughs> in the life of their child and how day by day, moment by moment, second by second, I would react and maybe anyone would react to the fact that your daughter may have murdered her best friend. Did you spend a long time on the screenplay working on those exact pivotal moments that take the story in a different direction? I did. I wanted to be as honest as possible because I know having written a lot of crime, how easy it is for us to distance ourselves from 
horrible acts. Uh, I think our human instinct is to say, no, I wouldn't do that. I would do the right thing in any situation until we're confronted with the situation. Then it's a very different story. But I think that for me, I wanted as difficult as the affinity to feel with people who are covering up the, the murder of a child, essentially, is I wanted the audience as much as humanly possible to be at least uncomfortable and at least torn up considering what they might do. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, I didn't leave the house for a solid week when I was writing the first draft. Um, I couldn't, you know, I was in a vortex of basically eating frozen stofers and, and just sitting in front of my laptop and crying. That's interesting that you found it such an emotional experience to actually write because it's an emotional experience to view. How was it to direct it? Directing it felt, you know, by the time you get to directing, it's starting to turn into a different thing because at that point, writing is so private. And at that point in directing, you set a stage for other artists to come in and give it their vision. And so it was mostly trying to remember where the map was in my head when I wrote it and giving the actors tiny pieces of information mostly just where are you coming from? You know, what happened in the moment prior to this moment and letting them go and watching mostly in awe at the life that they would breathe into the moment that I just imagined, you know, on the page and the incredible nuance. I mean, I'll never forget shooting the breakfast scene with all the cast members and letting the camera go. I think we let the camera go for half an hour and I never cut. And they just went again and again and again. And the awe I felt and the entire crew felt, no one spoke. It was an incredible moment on set. It is a fantastic cast. And I know that like us, you're very invested in representation on screen. Can you talk to me a little bit about the casting and characters of the lie with this in mind? Yeah, it was really important to me. I mean, I'll talk about two things. One is it's always been very important to me to have women on screen who look and act and are real women. Yeah. Um, you know, working with me, Ray Enos on The Killing was the beginning of that gift and that mm-hmm. responsibility and opportunity. And here also, you know, I also want to bring up with me, Ray, and the great courage this woman has because as you see over the course of the film, this radical physical transformation from a woman who has incredible impeccable taste in how she puts herself together to Mm -hmm. at the end of the film, literally falling apart physically and showing up in her pajamas, basically her dirty boots and hair uncombed and her face dirty with dirt and blood. And so (laughs) that transformation was really important that she not show up with lipstick in that final moment, which unfortunately the tropes in our industry especially prior to the killing, you know, women would always show up, you know, at the scene of a death of a child and have lips gone. So real representation. The character of Sam was really important to me that here's a brown man whose child has gone missing, who may be murdered, who over the course very quickly of the story becomes the perpetrator in the eyes of the law. That was really important that this not be just a story because in the original German film, that this is based on all the characters were white. And I wanted through the character of Sam to tell a very specific American story about race. Hey. Bet they thought they were gonna get away with this, huh? Excuse me? Brittany and Kayla didn't make it to the dance camp. Didn't the school call you? No, Kayla's sick. I kept her home this weekend. I was sure they were doing this together. You know, they're with their secret plans. No way. 
What? Dad, pull over. It's Fritz. What are you doing here? I'm going to that stupid ballet thing. Duh. You think I could talk to Kayla? Her dad took her to the doctor. Can she call me when she's back? Of course. <laughs> you need to tell her dad that you don't know where she is. No. Well, you did that very successfully, may I say. It did not go unnoticed, what you did with the hair and makeup and appearance, because it always bugs me when people are over-coiffed and over-made up when they're going through the worst day of their entire life. You're like, no way. You look like you just come out of the hairdressers. So, well done. <laughs> I've read before that you talked a little bit about flawed heroes. And again, that's something that we're very interested in, like complex women on screen in general. Can you talk to me a bit about how that's important to you on screen? I want to see women who are deeply complex. And that means being able to see women who make mistakes, women who um, are bad mothers, women who don't wear makeup, you know, and women who are deeply, viciously ambitious for themselves. And too often what I feel frustrated about what we see is a 1950s version of women in various guises and certainly the male perspective in almost every single woman character in our industry, especially again, prior to the killing. I remember I created the killing partially out of this desperate, desperate need to have a woman who is in the profession she was in, you know, she's a detective, look like the real detectives I know you know, or I've, I've done research with. And prior to that, it felt like every detective or many detectives on television looked like they came from the Playboy channel. And- <laughs> So true. What that does, it's not a minor thing. Yeah. You know, it creates an idea of who women are and it creates for a generation, blow up doll versions of our humanity. Very well said. And now you said in 2018 in Deadline that the industry was still in the Stone Age when it came to the matters that we're talking about right now. Have things moved on since then? Because of technology and the pure fact that there's more real estate and more necessity to create things, there are more voices. Because there are more people of color and women in positions of power, which I mean very specifically green lighting projects on television and film, there are more voices. We are not where we need to be. I want to be really clear, like there's still in, in television writing rooms, there's 90% are all white. I think 95% are still run by men. This looks like the Trump administration, guys. Like it does not look like the America I live in. This is not the America I live in. And so why is our industry having such a difficult time reflecting that? What are the key things that need to be addressed to move on? I mean, you've said, obviously, having more people in positions of power, but what can be done? I know it's not a small conversation, but what big steps can be done to make that happen? Number one, the same way we've looked at the actual numbers around writers' rooms and television, let's look at the actual numbers around who the executives are, who greenlight projects, who makes up the development process, the production process, et cetera. How many people of color and women are in positions of true power, in that industry. Let's start putting some of the focus there because I could write and pitch from kingdom come, you know, all sorts of ideas, but unless I get the green light to actually make it, it doesn't matter. So we champion female and diverse film critics. So it's not just about the women who are making the films, the people that are making the films, it's the people that are writing about them. Would you agree that diversity is really important in criticism as well? Thank you so much for bringing up that, Anna, because I think that is as important as anything else, because that is the link between is our work looked at 
and given credence and given awards and given any attention by the audience that we've made it for, or does it die on the vine? Because apparently it's not good enough compared to male creators. I'm gonna be very specific here. I hope this helps. When I created Seven Seconds, some of the critical response, quite a lot of it was, this is really dark and this is really depressing. You know, this is like a dirge watching a story about a young black kid getting murdered by a cop. Oh my God, so depressing. Meanwhile, you know, there's a show on with dragons raping women like every five seconds and that's genius. So that tells me exactly who those journalists are and they are not black writers, they are not brown writers, they are not women. They're white dudes, you know? And that's why we need in the critics ranks as well, people who understand the import of our work and are able to communicate that and not dismiss it. You have summed up our MO, thank you. I think it is it is hugely important and that's why we try to get a diverse range of women on to talk about film and to reach a lot of people. Changing the subject somewhat, Halloween is coming up and of course there are a lot of horror movies coming out. Do you feel things have moved on in terms of the depiction of women in genre affair? And are there any films that influence you, perhaps even growing up, that you felt were iconic kind of cult Halloween-y type films? Uh, Night of the Living Dead, George Romero, loved it. And it influenced me deeply because the main character was a black man. You know, it was like, so awesome, you know, back in the day. I mean, the way this movie ended, not so great, but um, I felt that that was so liberating. A bizarre adventure in fear. An experience in shock, more shattering than your strangest nightmare. <laughs> Night of the living dead. A night with the dead who cannot die. A night of total terror. And I've also felt like as a lover of genre all my life, it's subversive in the sense that women are the heroes, usually of genre, which is really, really yeah. impactful. You know, when you're a girl, even though there's this problematic sexualization in genre of women's bodies, there is also the woman as hero who turns and faces the attacker and defeats him, which is always, I think, probably had a, a secret and deep influence on me wanting to see that type of woman hero in a story. Yeah, it feels like even though women are objectified in horror movies or classic horror movies, there is more opportunity for really interesting female characters, conversely. Absolutely. I mean, It Follows with Micah Monroe was such, I think, a genius film because as women, we do inhabit a world where we are literally and truly threatened by violence and rape. That is the world we live in. And so horror movies, I think, have the capacity to bring to the fore the truth of that terror. And Micah, I think, in the film was so wonderful because she didn't... When I was shooting The Killing, we had a whole conversation, me and Patty Jenkins, about how you inhabit fear as a woman. And you don't flip your hair and throw your neck about and you crawl and you tighten like an animal because you're desperate to get away. And that's what Micah showed and it follows. She was not putting lipstick on and screaming. And so in and of itself, that's a revolution in our industry, <laughs> you know, in and of itself that conveys true fear and unless the audience actually feel fear versus what's up with the makeup and or God, she's hot. <laughs> well put. Now what's next for you? Maybe a sci-fi. I'm really interested in, you know, I, I went from crime drama, you know, to maybe, you know, a whole other genre just to play in a different sandbox. 
That's very exciting. Well, we seriously can't wait to see what you do next. And thank you so much for joining Girls on Film. Great talking to you. My next guest is the star of The Lie, Mireille Enos, who also plays Marissa in the series Hannah and appeared in films including World War Z and Gangster Squad. I was curious to ask her about the intense journey her character goes on in The Lie. I mean, you take a woman who all day, every day, she is like dotting every I and crossing every T. She has like such control over her world. And by the end, she is completely unraveled. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's well put without spoilers. I mean, so much of the lie invites us to think about how we would react ourselves in extreme circumstances. Yes. And maybe it's hard to know. And that was, that was one of the things I enjoyed about it. Enjoyed maybe the wrong word, but I appreciate about it because it makes you question your own morality. When you yes. were preparing for the role, did you go through those kind of thoughts yourself? Yes, of course. I mean, it's an impossible question that the film poses in the face of your child's life being forever altered, never the same what on earth do you do? And I, I think it's such a human impulse to just to think no matter what, I cannot allow her life to be destroyed, whatever it takes. And then, you know, the insidiousness of lying and all of the little lies that build upon each other to get you to the end. Now, I, you know, I would hope that most people so no spoilers, so I have to edit what I was going to say, but um, yeah. most people approaching the choices that these two parents make near the end of the film would pause and maybe not make those final choices. But for at least three quarters of the film, I think it's completely plausible that we would just keep covering our tracks to keep our kids safe. Completely. I mean, reality to me was a big part of this, which is always very interesting to see in what is effectively yeah. presented as a genre film. Is that one of the reasons you enjoy working with Vina? Because I think she's really great at that kind of thing. She is. She's remarkable. She takes a genre like a psychological thriller or a crime drama, and then she just infuses it with humanity and social issues and, you know, all of the kind of like dark underbelly of things any person might think about. And so we can recognize ourselves when we, when we watch her projects. How do you want to do something really bad? I pushed her. <laughs> she fell. The second degree murder. There's something wrong with her. She was such a happy little girl. Kayla's friend, her father came by the house acting strange. Did Brittany ever talk about her father? She told me that he hits her. What kind of social issues do you think this film brings up? Oh, well, I mean, racial profiling and the fact that the friend's father, his family's from Pakistan, the way that the police officers treat him because of where he's from and what his lineage is, you know, it's so ugly. And it's so important to keep that narrative alive because obviously, you know, we're dealing with huge racial issues in the United States and, you know, elsewhere in the world. And, um, you know, that scene, it just, it makes me nauseous. You watch it happening and you know that situations like this play out every minute of every day. So anyway, I, I just admire her for keeping those issues alive. I couldn't agree more. Obviously on Girls on Film, we're celebrating female filmmakers. Do you ever get the sense that her gender informs her style as a director? Almost certainly, yes. Although she just is like one of the most proficient 
directors I've ever worked with. And whether that is because of who she is or also what her gender is, or it's, it's hard to say. She is remarkable in every facet of the work that we do on set. Her understanding of narrative, her understanding of how to collaborate with actors, her understanding of camera and picture, and how to work with crew and buoy them up. There's no aspect of set life where she falls short. I'm fairly in awe of her. Well, you're a great team. Now, I'm thinking about the weather in this film. This isn't the first snowy thriller you filmed. Of course, there's also <laughs> The Captive on Amazon Prime Video. What do you think that extreme setting can bring to a thriller? I mean, it was a happy accident because when she originally wrote it, she had imagined it being summertime. And then production oh. got pushed for one reason and another. And it ended up just being like kind of miraculous for the film that there's nowhere to get comfort in their world. Everything like hurts a little and the bleakness of it. We would laugh that the cold weather was doing a lot of our acting for us because, <laughs> because we, were so, <laughs> we were so cold. There would be scenes where our teeth would literally be chattering. And we're like, oh, that's awesome. I will look so scared, <laughs> but I'm actually just freezing. <laughs> Train me like a machine. Why? Have to find her before she finds us. Shoot on sight. If anyone asks, that girl does not exist. I'm not safe. People are trying to hurt me. I want you to trust me. I can't trust anyone. The world is a vampire. Now, you're also in, in, in Hannah on Prime Video, which is a terrific series that has really complex roles for women of different ages. What interests you about that show from a feminist perspective? Well, I just, I think it's wonderful to have exciting television shows for young women to watch where their heroine is a person of strength. But also, I think the most important lesson in there is Hannah's journey towards a moral compass and her trying to figure out how to use that power and how to find human connection. And she's dealing with all of these issues, obviously in a very extreme situation that normal teenage girls are dealing with. And in season two, this idea of the new trainees receiving their idea of what the world is through social media and how powerful a forum that is and being given their identity by outside sources and told like, this is how you're supposed to slot into society. I think there's very, very interesting themes for young women. And that does tie into the lie as well, doesn't it, of course, with Joey's yes. character. Talk to me yes. a little bit more about your character's relationship with her daughter and also how she tries to navigate this kind of new world of young people and how they communicate with each other. Yeah, I think the fallout of her divorce, she was asked to be the adult in that relationship and she took that on. And I think she's doing it to, you know, an extreme, which is a story that we see over and over again someone who is required to pick up the broken pieces and create an ordered life. And in that process, there's an emotional disconnect that she's organizing their life, which includes kind of organizing Joey's life instead of actually connecting to her emotionally. And 
I don't want to say that any of this is the mother's fault. Everyone's making choices. But if she knew her daughter better, if her kind of standards were less important than her love for her daughter, this could have gone a different way. Yeah, you know what, it, it kept me awake at night thinking about all the different ways it could have gone if tiny little decisions had been made differently. Tiny little yeah. decisions. The old classic horror movie trope, you're screaming at the screen going, no. Yes. No! <laughs> yes. no, no. Um, now, Halloween, of course, is coming up and that's an interesting time for horrors and thrillers, including the Blumhouse collection. I think in recent years, we've seen some more interesting roles for women in those kind of films. Um, mm -hmm. Have you got any particular favourites, either that you've been in or that you've watched? I'm going to be terrible at answering this question. I hate horror films. <laughs> I know it's a very exciting genre. My husband loves horror films. I can't. I don't sleep. I can't watch them. So even though The Lie is in this anthology with these other films that I think I haven't seen them, but I think they lean more towards the horror. Luckily for me, The Lie is not actually horror. So I was able to do it. So I have no good answer for you. So have you turned down horror movies because you can't bear to watch them? Yes. Wow. What do you look for in a role? I look for, I mean, if it's not on the page, it's very hard to bring it to life in front of the camera. So first, that the writing is good, that the human connections are interesting. Um, I do tend to be drawn to people with secrets. I think secrets in a narrative is a really powerful tool. But mostly just that, the story kind of like jumps up off the page and you can imagine it. You can like when I read, if I can hear it in my ear, it usually means it's going to be fun to fun to make it. That's interesting. You mean the dialogue you can hear, you can hear yourself yeah. saying it. I can yeah. hear myself saying it. And it doesn't mean that the role is necessarily even like me, but there's something about it that wakes up an aspect of me and I can hear it in my ear. And then there's other scripts that it's just like, flatline like I can't hear anything and then I know that it's not for me that's an interesting way of looking at it and I can see that's probably obviously very effective let's talk a bit little bit about the killing because obviously an iconic yeah. role for you I mean yeah how was that experience for you completely remarkable I mean it was by far the largest undertaking I had ever had on film I went from doing Big Love, which was a wonderful experience, but it was like, that was my education in front of a camera. It was a wonderful role, but it was small enough that I wasn't overwhelmed by it and I could use it as, as a form to get used to playing with the camera. And I went right from there to the lead of this remarkably written show. And um, I also had my daughter seven weeks before we started shooting the season. So it was everything, every huge event in my life happened at once. And I just have to say without Vina's incredible writing, I don't know if I would have risen to the occasion in the same way. She just, it was so beautifully drawn that I just literally had to step on the set and the story would present itself. And the pleasure of working with Joel Kinnaman who, we have similar styles and we approach our work starting with curiosity. If you're curious about the other person, if you're curious about the narrative, then the possibilities are endless. And so we would just get on set every day and just like have a scavenger hunt into the story, into each other. And so it felt like wonderfully creative play. And when you think of the future, not just for yourself, but for other women, both in front of and behind the camera in film, do you feel optimistic? Do you think things are moving on? 
yes, definitely. You know, it's, it's always a tricky question about women in film. I know that a lot of actresses have felt that the roles are not so interesting, whatever. I've been so lucky that my journey, both on stage and then in film, I've gotten to play these incredibly varied, interesting, multifaceted people. So I've had a really lucky journey. But I have also witnessed more and more and more women as directors, camera operators, you know, in every aspect of the film world. And I think that will only continue to tumble. You ever lose your temper with your kid? Who told you to do this? Does he really hit her? No. Yes, oh. I learned from the best. My next guest is Kaylee Donaldson, a pop culture writer and critic based in Dundee, Scotland. She's a features writer for Pajiba.com and her work can also be found on Sci-Fi Fangirls and What to Watch. She's also the co-host of the podcast The Hollywood Read. Hi Kaylee, happy Halloween and welcome to Girls on Film. Happy Halloween to you too, thanks for inviting me. Do you have any plans for Halloween this year? A bit difficult to have plans, isn't it? Well, usually my friends and I get together and we watch a film. Like last year we watched The Witches and then just drank a lot of red wine. This year I will probably just wander around my house in my Twin Peaks dress watching vampire movies, which frankly to me sounds ideal. But yeah, I really can't go anywhere else. You're not allowed to go out drinking in pubs in Scotland right now, so... Oh, bad luck. But I do like the image of you wandering around in your Twin Peaks dress <laughs> with a glass of red wine. I hope you're going to post a picture of that on social media. Oh, yeah. I mean, I only really get to wear it once a year. You know, funnily enough, it's not great summer clothing. I am intrigued now. <laughs> okay. So, Kaylee, I've asked you to pick out a few horrors for us to discuss. And your first film choice is Suspiria, Luca Guadalina's remake of the classic 70s horror about a dance academy that's actually secretly a witch's coven. When you dance the dance of another, you make yourself in the image of its creator. I feel like I'm not even here yet. The dumpling's incredible. One, two, three. The way she transmits her work. You have to decide what is it you want to be for this company. There's more in that building than what you can see, Doctor. dangerous people. Now this had a mixed critical reception on its release. Were you a fan? So I came into this film as someone who really doesn't care all that much about the Dario Argento original, which I know is kind of blasphemy, <laughs> but I, I'm really fascinated by horror remakes that totally reinvent the original. And um, Suspiria is kind of the perfect example of that. I'd also look at the remake of Cat People, which is one of my favourite films of all time. The remake of mm. Fright Night, which is, um, I think it's on Amazon right now, completely reinvents that movie into being a rape allegory, which I'm completely fascinated by. But Suspiria is just jam-packed with so many ideas and themes and this incredibly unnerving tension that, for me, is actually much more effective than the phantasmagoria of the original, which I understand, but it never did much for me. What I love about the new Suspiria is how it makes you so susceptible to the the drabness of this world. Like, there's no colour in this thing. It's a complete 180 from the Argento film, which is famously like a rainbow. But you get sucked into this very mundane-looking world and then there's a complete assault of all your senses, whether it's the, the dance scenes or the Tom York music or 
just how much your mind does it ends up being having tricks played on it when you realise just how many Tilda Swintons there are in that movie. I think Peter Bradshaw, The Guardian, said it was more like an MA thesis than a movie, but I like the sheer level of politics and themes that's going on in it. It's maybe not an easy watch if you're looking for a casual Halloween viewing with lots of traditional scares. It's really not that kind of movie, but for two hours 40, I think the running time is, I was just genuinely deeply unsettled by it in a way that's to this day, it's actually still really hard to shake. Interesting, yeah, because I haven't seen it since it came out a couple of years ago. And that you maybe want to see it again, because I think there's a lot of detail in here as well and things that you can really unpack. Would you say it's a feminist film? See, I'm always curious about labelling anything like that, especially when it's a film that's written by men, that's directed by men. Mm. It is a wonderfully feminine film. I mean, even the main male role in this movie is famously mm. played by Tilda Swinton. Spoiler for people who haven't seen it. But I love the, the expansion of the theme of the original movie, the idea of this twisted community that comes out of the coven. Witches and the idea of like the terrifying notion that women might get together and start planning stuff is a big theme <laughs> of horror in general. Look at any movie with witches in it and you'll see that. But what is so fascinating about Suspiria, you have this very dark connection to the political history of the time. It's set in Germany in the 1970s. You have this American woman coming into the coven. You have all of these very young, very fragile women being kind of played like pawns in this game. But the power shift that happens through this strange community that they have is so fascinating. And I think that's something that I found very unnerving to watch. Is Because like, there's a small, always a small voice in the back of your head when you watch films like this. It's like, I would probably want to be one of the witches in this. Like, it wouldn't end well, but I would rather be on their side <laughs> than on the other side. Yeah. I was thinking this um, with the remake of The Witches that's coming out and how there's still a small part in the back of my head. It's like, I wouldn't mind being one of those witches, even though they're just the worst people alive. They are terribly glamorous by the looks of the Anne Hathaway trailer anyway. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that, uh, the very different film, The Witches Remake. So that was Suspiria. And now you've said that Mary Hannon is one of your favourite directors. And she, of course, helmed American Psycho, which we've discussed before on Girls on Film. Now, if listeners haven't seen it yet, how would you sell it to them? I think it's one of the great movies about the poison that is toxic masculinity. That's also one of the great dark comedies of the past 30 years. It's a really kind of hard sell because either you are with that premise or you're not. It's similar to the book. You either totally get what it's doing or you think that it's complete sick filth and you want nothing to do with it. I'm always fascinated by how Brett Easton Ellis continues to rant today about how women directors aren't all that good. And it's like, the only good movie that's ever been made out of your movies was made by Mary Harron. Like, some respect, please. And I know to this day people argue about, is American psychosexist? Is it, you know, you know the violence against women? And it's very violent against women. It is a story about a, a serial killer who primarily targets sex workers, which is, you know, depressingly common in horror and in film in general. But I think what the film is mm. so good at translating with the book is the way that this very twisted mind doesn't see a difference between being obsessed with Phil Collins and just casually nail-gunning people in the head. You know, the way that he, like, looks at himself in the mirror, Christian Bale, who's so spot-on in that role. He is genuinely, like, hilarious and terrifying at the same time. And I think Mary Harron nails that tone so well. She's one of the few directors working who has an incredibly precise idea about the, the strange layers of womanhood and how it pertains to the way that men react to them. She makes a lot of biopics about women, which don't exist much at all. She made a film about Valerie Solanas, who shot Andy Warhol. She made a film about Betty Page. 
she recently made a film about the Manson girls called Charlie Says, which I think is brilliant and nobody saw because it went straight to DVD here. But she really understands what it's like to be a woman on the precipice of this horrible, creepy, sexist world where they're expected to shut up and look pretty and that's still not good enough. Beautifully put, may I say. That is one of my favourite comments on American Psycho. Another film that we have talked about quite a lot on Girls on Film before, but that you've picked out and I think it's interesting to revisit, and that's Midsummer. I told you that I want to go to that festival in Sweden. No, you said it would be cool to go. Yeah, and then I got the opportunity and I decided Look, I to do it. I don't mind you going. I just wish you would have told me. That's all. Dude, she needs a therapist. You've been wanting out of this stupid relationship for like a year now. And don't forget about all of the beautiful Swedish women you'll meet in June. Okay, guys. That's not her again. Seriously? Babe, what's happening? Danny. Tell me why you think this is interesting, particularly from a female perspective, although it does, of course, come from a male director. Yeah, I think the rise of Ari Aster is completely fascinating because he's this director who makes kind of ridiculous films. If you watch some of his short films as well, he infamously made a film called The Strange Thing About the Johnsons, which is completely barmy, but is also deeply unsettling. And you get that with both Hereditary and Midsummer. The idea that I mean, this is basically, it's, it's a wicker man kind of story. Folk horror is full of stories about people prancing around with flowers on their head who then kill people. You know, it's a great staple of horror. But what I think is so effective about Midsummer, kind of like Suspiria, actually, is that building of this very twisted community and how someone deeply damaged and deeply alone like Florence Pugh's character could actually find solace in it, despite the fact that they are casually murdering and drugging people all the time and you can't pull away from it as well i mean this is a film where everything takes place in broad daylight it kind of breaks the sacred rules of horror there's nowhere to hide you know you see everything and unlike hereditary where you spend so much time looking in the shadows because you know there's something there and you won't be able to realize there's something there until you watch it on dvd and then it'll scare you all over again midsummer is the polar opposite of that but still hugely effective and it takes these images that should be ridiculous like there's a man in the skin of a bear there's like a lot of stuff involving bears actually and it should be silly and there's just something about it that Ari Aster takes just seriously enough because that film is also really darkly funny as well like Will Poulter is sucking on a vape pen for so much of that movie and it's ridiculous but I think he nails that balance in a way that is incredibly difficult to do and I think you need now and then with horror you just need that puncture of like that hopeless laughter that you do while the world is burning that makes it even more effective which you know is not the case with Suspiria there is not a laugh to be had in Suspiria that is an incredibly dour film and it works on that level that I don't think you could have got away with doing Midsummer if it had been 100% bleak because Ari Aster does bleak so incredibly well but you do need those moments where it is just you know these people are wearing flowers and skipping around a maypole and they're all smiling and drugging people and they're dying and it's weird but also it's completely understandable why someone would fall into that world and I think he's also very good at doing that with women I mean, mm-hmm. the roles that he creates for women in these films. I mean, Tony Collette in Hereditary is one of the great performances in film of the past, I don't know, 20 years, maybe even more. He really allows them to just be almost monstrous in their expressiveness. Like the cry face that Florence Pugh has all the way oh, from Midsummer. Yeah. Like it's brilliant and it's ugly and it's unseemly and uncomfortable. And you just don't really get to see that, especially if you were, you know, 
I love horror by a massive chicken, but I was also brought up with films where there's a lot of the final girl, there's a lot of the mini skirts and the kind of yes. the one tear going down their face with the mascara streak, you know, where they all look very pretty. And I kind of like films where women get to be monstrous and ugly or get to engage in the monstrous, which is one of the reasons that horror is so good for that. Whether it is, you know, a coven of witches or vampires or the act of childbirth of monstrousness with things like The Brood and Rosemary's Baby. To me, that's why I think we should pay more attention to horror just in terms of feminism. There's so much great feminist film theory about horror. And I'm, I'm glad that we have this kind of current glut of horror coming in that allows us to engage more with that, you know, more power for that. Dear God, your presence graces the air and soon everyone will see. Hi, are you Maud? Yes, hi. It takes nothing special to mop up after the dying. You're prettier than the last one. But to save a soul, that's quite something. Bless Amanda's body and bless her mind, which is shrouded in darkness. When you pray, do you get a response? Oh, it's like he's physically in me. Well, it feels like it is actually a really good time for women in horror at the moment. St. Maud is topping the box office in the UK. You've seen that recently, correct? Yeah. What did you think? Oh, I was also, once again, as I said, I love horror, but I'm also a chicken. So that was one where I came back to my flat and just had all the lights on for a while. Not because I was scared, just till, you know, (sighs) things calmed down a little bit. There was a lot of that film that reminded me of like a weird cross between like Robert Bresson and Lynn Ramsey. It's actually very Lynn Ramsey in places. Mm. She's one of my favorites. So I was all in on that. There's that idea of just these women falling into the absolute abyss of darkness and kind of liking what they see there is so appealing and I I hope people seek this one out because I know that I don't blame you if you don't want to go to theaters right now but if you are looking for something kind of spooky and Halloween related I think this would be a really great fit because it's it doesn't take all the directions you think that it's going to I kind of don't want to dig into it too much without spoiling it but it is beautifully done as well I mean there are just shots in that film that are so astounding and they're not spoiled in the trailer thankfully which is another big problem a lot of modern horror has you know they try to give away too much to hook you I think the Midsummer trailer was at risk of that but it it was okay Um, you couldn't really spoil Suspiria thankfully Um, (laughs) so go see St. Maud if you have the chance it really is worth the hype because a friend saw it when it premiered at TIFF a couple years ago and it was just all they talked about and it's sustained that hype which I'm so thankful for because right now getting people to pay attention to film is depressingly difficult. (laughs) Well you're right cinemas are open and if people do feel safe and able to then I really do think you should go and see St Maud on the big screen and Morpheus Clark is fantastic and Rose Glass has done a tremendous what what a debut as well for Rose Glass I can't wait to see what she does next absolutely tremendous. I mean that was astounding when I realised it was a debut it was just like you come out of the gate with this the expectations are high and I think horror is a great platform for a lot of up-and-coming directors because it's a genre you can do pretty cheap it's one where you're allowed to be very imaginative and really kind of cross a lot of boundaries that you may not get away with in other genres and now that we're in a streaming age you don't really necessarily have to worry about film ratings and things like that you can just make the product you want to make and get people to see it as it is which in and of itself is very exciting because I'm also of that generation where all the great horror films got remade into like 12a certificate 15 films that missed the entire point uh you know like when they did like the nightmare on elm street remake and the friday the 13th ones that are so pointless and then just make you so proud of something like suspiria because like that's what you should do with a remake you should just completely tear up the rule book you should be worried about 
slavishly recreating the original. That's what the original is for. To be torn up. <laughs> it depends on the material. I mean, people said that Suspiria was, you know, sacred. You couldn't do what Luca Guadagnino did to it, but he did. And, and thankfully he did that, because otherwise, what is the point in even trying to tackle this material if you're so devoted to just, like, copy and pasting it? You know, because that's not scary at all, because if you know what's going to happen, you know, all you'll get are cheap jump scares. And at least with Suspiria, I had no idea what was happening. Exactly. That, that keeps you on the edge of your seat, for sure. And um, there are a couple of other films in cinemas or coming to cinemas soon that I wanted to quickly flag up. I don't know if you've had a chance to see Carl Miller. Not yet, but I'm a huge nerd for vampire stories. And I've yep. always been really disappointed that people don't adapt Carmilla because it predates Dracula. Actually, Bram Stoker ripped off a lot in that book with Dracula. But I think a lot of people are put off by the uh, the quote unquote lesbian vampire movie. Oh. Even though like lesbian <laughs> lesbian vampires is like a genuinely great part of horror history. Mm-hmm. Like every Hammer horror movie and Tony Scott's The Hunger with Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie, yes, which is one of classic. my favorite. I love that. It's one of my favorite movies. So I would love to see this one kind of get its due because it is an underspoken classic. And honestly, I think it's one of those things where when people will actually watch it, they'll see the past 150 years of horror flash before their eyes and they'll realize, oh, that's where everybody got it from. So I'm excited to see that one to add to my vampire collection. I'll be interested to know what you think of it. It's a great folk horror and it really kind of dials down the vampire aspect and puts very much the onus on character and sexuality, but in a in a classy way, not in an exploitative way. So yeah, I, I really liked it. Another female-directed horror, um, which is coming out on October 30th, is Relic. Uh, have you had a chance to see that one? No, not yet, sadly. It's kind of centering around dementia. Um, it stars Emily Mortimer and Bella Heathcote. So that's also worth checking out. And Cordelia, which is co-written by and starring Antonia Campbell-Hughes, is worth checking out as well. And that's all filmed around Bloomsbury, near where I live. So that's a different kind of location for a horror there. More of a psychological thriller, but also a very intriguing one. So it's a good time for cinema. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? Anything else that you're working on that we should know about? Uh, yeah, so I, I'm writing for uh, one of the places I write for Sci-Fi Fangirls, and we've now just started writing about true crime for the website. So I've been talking a lot about the work of true crime writers like Anne Rule and the influence on pop culture. I'm currently writing about Clary Starling, who is one of my great heroines of horror. Silence of the Lambs is one that I revisit all the time. Anything Hannibal Lecter related, actually, I must admit. But if you're interested in horror of women in horror in particular, go and check out BFI player or movie and see some of like the old classics, the real black and white stuff in the public domain. Like go and watch Carnival of Souls, which is on YouTube because it's public domain, which is one of the great B movies of the 1960s that basically David Lynch learned everything from that film. Go check out the works of Ida Lupino, who was one of the first people to make like a horror noir movie in the 1950s. It's called The Hitchhiker. And go and check out Shudder on Amazon, which is a whole horror channel that you can add on to your Prime subscription if you have it. And you will discover just so many great up-and-coming women directors of horror, people like the Soska sisters who make very Cronenbergian body horrors. There's a whole world of this stuff out there. And, you know, if you're all going to be stuck inside this Halloween anyway, you might as well do it with a whole week of horror movies, which is what I plan to do. I've got nothing else to do. (laughs) Well, these are excellent recommendations. And have a very happy or very spooky or a very enlightening uh, Halloween. (laughs) And do come back again on Girls on Film. Um, We'd love to have you back, Kayleigh. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can watch The Lie and the rest of the Welcome to the Blumhouse collection on Prime Video now, as well as films including Midsummer, Suspiria, American Psycho and the TV series Hannah. I'd also recommend The Ones Below and Prevenge for female-focused horror. 
Saint Maud, Carmilla and Cordelia are in cinemas now and Relic is in cinemas and on digital from the 30th of October 2020. Thanks for listening to Girls on Film and thanks to our executive producer, Hedda Archbold, our producer, Jane Long, our assistant producer, Heather Dempsey, our intern, Eliana Jay, and our partners for this episode, Amazon Prime Video. Do follow us and message us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You can find all the info in the episode description. Don't forget the Girls on Film has a Patreon page where you can pledge a small amount each month to support us and you might get a special treat in return. Go to patreon.com forward slash girls on film podcast. Please subscribe and review us if you've enjoyed this episode. And don't forget, we have special film shows on the BFI's YouTube channel. We have a new activism special up there now featuring Frida Pinto and other great guests. You've been listening to me, Anna Smith, and I was joined by Marae Enos, Fina Sood, and Kaylee Donaldson. See you soon and stay safe, everyone. Nothing worthwhile comes easily. 